Welcome everybody to a new episode of Podcast a Week. I blame you. Yes, you, listener who's nice enough to actually still listen to this podcast. Hi. But I said, if I don't upload a podcast, you should give out to me. And I didn't upload a podcast and no one gave out to me, which made me feel a little sad. But also I just forgot. It's not actually, mm, forget is the wrong word to use. It's more laziness. But that's not even really laziness. It's more forgetful laziness. It's a combination. You, you will listen to a line at the start of this episode where I braggingly call this a weekly show again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but me and James talk about Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of the three Lord of the Rings films, which is a real good film. It's a real good film. God, I love this film. I love it more than I remembered I love it, which is always a nice thing. So we go into depth on that. Next week, I swear I'll upload it. Me and Barry will talk about Thor Ragnarok as we build up. We're only a month away from Infinity War, so that's exciting. We'll finish. We'll catch up. Me and Barry will probably record Black Panther soon. And we'll be caught up before Infinity War. And I can promote a full review playlist, like was the plan all along, I'm sure. I'm winking, but you can't see that I'm winking because, well, that's not how podcasts work. Anyway, me and James Faye talk all about The Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. Welcome back to Podcast of the Week. A good, uh, as I do math, uh, I should never do maths on the podcast. 17 years ago, a, a film trilogy, which was pretty much like the film events of my childhood, was released. And I figured, why not talk about them on this very podcast that I do weekly now? Season two. It's a real thing. Joining me to do that is the lovely James Faye. James, how are we doing? We're not doing too bad. Uh, 17 years kind of makes me feel a bit old, though. It does. What age was I? I was nine when this film came out. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, I was eight years old. Like, I can still vividly remember going to see each film in the trilogy. Thinking about that in retrospect, do you think these films are appropriate for eight, (laughs) nine-year-olds? I think so. I think they're just kind of right at that kind of juncture that they're okay for, like, young children. There is a full-on beheading in this film, though. Yes. <laughs> um, maybe the latter films, the likes of Return of the King, are a bit dark, though, for, like, eight-year-olds. Mm. Yeah, when we were, what, 11 and 12, respectively. Oh, we were mature enough for those films at that stage. Oh, totally. So we're going to do this as a, a three-part series, obviously one per film. That's just the logical way to do things. Were, were, like, were these films huge parts of your childhood as well? Oh, these these were huge parts of my childhood. Like the Hobbit was actually the first like proper novel I ever read as a kid, and so obviously that was kind of my gateway into the films, and then obviously the books. Oh, so you were a book first guy. Technically, I was a book first guy. Uh, one of my favorite teachers back in primary school had read the Hobbit to us before the films were released, uh-huh. uh, the Lord of the Rings films, and uh, it just like completely captured me totally, like. Because I did buy the books after, I think it was actually after Return of the King, and I did get halfway through them, and then didn't finish them, but I got halfway through. You've never finished the books? No. Oh my god, (laughs) I have finished the books several times. I'm a fake fan, clearly. Totally. (laughs) At least least I've started the books. I don't know, I I tried reading uh, the Silmarillion recently, and I could not make it through that. Well, that that goes like deep, deep into the lore. More deep than like any reasonable human being wants, doesn't it? Oh, it's just like a, a Bible of Middle Earth and all the events and people, and it's it's so so long. And it's like, yeah, that's not even like that's not even a story. Oh, well, there's like little like crumbs of story in there, but there's not like a narrative in there, is there? No, it's it's basically like an, an anthology of like events and places and people and everything. It's like if you sat down to read the encyclopedia, except the entire encyclopedia was made up. Oh, totally. <laughs> which is fun. So we're going to talk about The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of the trilogy, directed by Peter Jackson. All of these films were directed by Peter Jackson. What did Peter Jackson do before these films? Um, he did a couple of kind of low-budget horror films in the 90s. He did one with Michael J. Fox, which was The Frighteners. Um, hmm. He did two horror films in New Zealand. I'm trying to think of the names. Uh, one was called Dead Alive, which I think has a different name in the States because of the Evil Dead films. And the other one was something to do with, like, these aliens coming from outer space, but it was, like, uh, they were, like, fast food restaurant workers from outer space. <laughs> um, I've seen small bits of it, but um, it seems pretty interesting. 
that's a, like that's a very straight like he goes from those which I assume were relatively low budget horror films to some of the most like ambitious large scale productions in the history of film. How do you even do that? I think he bought the rights. Him and a group of people bought the rights from I can't remember which which cinema. Uh, what New Line Cinema wasn't. Um, he bought the rights in the nineties, and he basically said, "I'm gonna do it myself." Mm. And he managed to get funding, but he, he really wasn't a big name director at all, even when he made the first film. Yeah, which I think is a kind of a through line that runs through this entire film. Even when you look at the cast, there's not a ton of like real big heavy hitters there. Oh, that's the thing. There's, there's no major like star names or anything. Like I think Russell Crowe originally was linked with Aragon, but that never kind of materialized. And who was it that was linked with Gandalf? It was uh. Oh, Sean name? Sean Connery. Sean Connery, yeah. Which yes. I I cannot imagine. I think he read the script and he didn't understand half of it, so he just said no. <laughs> I would have loved to see Sean Connery's Gandalf. Yeah. Because like even even Ian McKellen was a relative like he obviously just a year before he would have done Magneto. Yeah, but before before that, I think he was just mainly like a stage actor. Yeah, and like Liv Tyler is probably the biggest star in this film. And even then, she's like the daughter of uh, your guy from Aerosmith. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's like the heavy hitter. So yeah, I think it's it's, and I think that does help the film. Because like if if Russell Crowe is playing Aragorn, you see Russell Crowe, you don't really see Aragorn. Oh, especially at the time, because Gladiator, I think, was only released in like two thousand, two thousand and one. So um, you've obviously just would have seen Russell Crowe as Gladiator playing Aragorn. Um, on the Wikipedia, it says Daniel Day Lewis was offered the part but turned it down. Nicholas Cage received an offer. Oh no! <laughs> I would love to live in a parallel universe where we got that Lord of the Rings. I would love to see, like, and that is the, also the universe where he actually became Superman. <laughs> That's a strange, wonderful part of the world. Superman lives. I've seen the documentary. Vin Diesel auditioned for Aragorn. Vin Diesel did that. I did not know because, like, he was a, and he would have been a relative nobody back then as well, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think that was before the Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah, and like pre Triple X, pre Fast and Furious. Yeah. Which are all his biggins. Yeah, was Cape Cape Blanchett a star back then? Not really. I think I mean I think the biggest star that the films actually had was Chris Lee. Yeah, and maybe Hugo Weaving. Maybe maybe Hugo Weaving with the Matrix kinda of having coming out. Yeah. Man, like it's strange to think of this huge film like they just landed on the shoulders of a bunch of relative unknowns, most of whom turned out to be tremendously good actors, which was fortunate. But that's the thing, like, if you had seen that cast and crew, like, in, say, 97, before they'd begun filming, you would have been like, this is not going to work. Yeah, you want to make this giant film trilogy in New Zealand with a bunch of no-name actors that aren't, like, we can't slap Russell Crowe's face on the poster and go, look, it's Russell Crowe at least. And you want us to give you all of this money to make this these dense, heavy books full of, like, thick lore and deep descriptions of literally that's actually the reason i stopped reading lord of the rings <laughs> tolkien describes everything there is not a thing tolkien does not describe if there is a tree he will tell you how many branches are on the tree how old the tree is if the tree was cut down how many rings would be in the middle of them the color and the different shades of the color he will tell you all of that information and i'm just like i just want to know what's happening in like the other parts of the world please stop describing that rock over there <laughs> Apparently, Tolkien wasn't big on the Lord of the Rings actually being popular as a book uh, in the 60s. He actually disliked the popularity of the books. He was a hipster for a thing he wrote himself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the films are exactly the same. I mean, they don't meet the audience halfway. Like, even with the prologue, you're just straight into all these weird names and mm. worlds and stuff. And uh, it doesn't let up. Like, it's real kind of immersion. I do think that prologue is is so effective. Oh, it's it's awesome! Because, it's awesome. I had I had me hook line and sinker as a kid. Yeah, because like even just from a tone standpoint, it's like there's like that that nugget of mystery and that kind of uh, obviously we'll talk about the score I think a little later in a little more detail because I think that score is uh, brilliant. But that that prologue setting out this world and they keep the stuff that doesn't need to be there out of it. It's there's an evil lord. He has some rings. The rings are bad. The rings are still here. Destroy the ring. That's the prologue. Uh, that's being a little reductive about it, but that's basically the prologue. But it's it's packaged in such like a brilliant kind of. It's almost succinct. I, I say that it's, it's. I think it's like ten minutes long almost. 
Well, okay, Game of Thrones, actually, the first episode of Game of Thrones is actually kind of similar in the way they kind of immerse you into the world. They don't kind of hold your hand. You're just mm. kind of introduced to everything straight from the get-go, and it's kind of like, okay, this is how it is. And this film does, like, like there's mentions of Rohan, there's re- mentions of Gondor, but, like, they're just kind of dropped in there, knowing, like, we'll expand on this in the next two films. Those play a bigger role there than they do here. But we'll just introduce those places, but not, like, focus on them. They don't try and do everything at once. They say, look, we'll keep... Obviously, we have characters from Gondor and Rohan, but we're not actually... Actually, no, we don't have characters from Rohan here. But regardless, it's mentioned a couple of times. But they keep all that out of the film, and it's just, like, here is the essential things we need to know for this film to work, and we'll expand on the rest of it when we actually need to. I think this film is very well broken into three acts. Yeah, because like, it is. There's your, your prologue, which sets up the universe. There's act one, which takes you up to Rivendell. Act two, which takes you up to like the death of Gandalf, and then Act three, which is the the last act. So will we go? Will we go act by act? Yeah, we should. So Act one, we're introduced to the Shire. Everything is happy. The world is bright. Everyone has not like yet given up hope. Everyone's just like, oh, Bilbo, it's their birthday. Yay! The world's not destroyed. I like this prologue or this this like opening half hour. The opening half hour is brilliant. Uh, in the theatrical cut, I recently watched the extended edition for the first time, and mm. I think it just ruins the opening. <laughs> it's so so long. I think that's worth like how 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 longer is the extended cut? It's about forty minutes or something, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it comes to like near three and a half hours, that's maybe a little bit more. That's lumping another half hour onto an already long film. I will say this film doesn't feel long, but it is objectively three hours is a long time. And to lump another half, and I think this film is very del- it's very well paced, but it's very delicately paced. And when you you kind of lump what what people like, people are always like, oh well, it's it's the extended cut, it's the best cut. Sometimes you know theatrical cuts are theatrical cuts for a reason. Oh, I, I totally agree. I think the, the theatrical cut is like miles better. The pacing is brilliant. Like I went back and I forgot how well paced it is, mm. and it just does not stop from start to finish. It does not. It's just, and it's. It's a relatively like action light film, isn't it? Yeah, just like it's relatively action light up until like the Mines of Moria and then uh, mm. kind of the the forest battle with the Urukai yep. towards the end. So you have the, you're like two major fight scenes in well fight scene yeah they're fight scenes in like the the second half of the film, but not much. Like there's the top of Weathertop that's about the the height of the like action drama in the first half of the film, isn't it? Like Elijah Wood and what do you think of Elijah Wood? I don't know. I I loved him as a kid and stuff, but the older you get, you kind of think the acting isn't so great. And going through it, like I was trying to com- compare the Lord of the Rings with Star Wars because it's the only major franchise that it's comparable with. And I compare Elijah's performances with Mark Hamill's in the original trilogy, which a lot of people don't like and still don't like. They find them to be really annoying. Mm. And it's the same with Elijah Wood, but I think yeah, but are really kind of fine. Because like he does capture like the, the the earnestness and like the sincerity you need you need out of that role, even if like his his faux British accent isn't so good. But I suppose once once you get into like the second and third film, it just becomes what it is. Well, that's the thing. In the first, he kind of slips between like a, a really bad British accent and then back to his American accent and then somewhere in between for the rest of uh, the trilogy. Yeah, but I think Sean Aston is uh, a better lead as Sam. Oh yeah, he's he's like I was talking about like the earnest sincerity. He is the very definition of that. Completely. They, 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 Stephen Colbert did a video recently where he just randomly dropped into the Sam voice, and I was like, oh, <laughs> the tears just come flooding back. It's it's so perfect. And then we have our our hobbits that ruin the film. <laughs> that ruined the film. <laughs> they don't. But I love the way like. If if you took Merry and Pippin out of the like story of Lord of the Rings, it's like, well, all of this goes much smoother, doesn't it? Well, your comic relief kind of gets cut a bit with uh, Merry and Pippin completely gone. Yeah, but that's what I kind of love about these films is that there's a like a huge lack of irony, mm. uh, and that makes the films actually work. There's no like sarcasm or kind of winking at the audience. Like, there's even that scene where, where like Gandalf is standing outside the mines of Moria and he can't get in, and like. A lesser filmmaker would have played that for like ha ha laughs, but like they cut to a shot of Frodo and he's just he's kind of almost embarrassed for Gandalf as he's standing in front of the door not knowing how to figure it out, and it's kind of like such a, a simple human feeling as opposed to like ha ha look at the old fool who doesn't know how to get into the magic door. 
that's the thing it could have been so easy to kind of make your comedy at the expense of the characters but they, they never do this like mm. i do think the, the second half of the first act kind of drags a little the second half of the first act is like from three on to rivendell that like kind of stretch in there yeah but it does have that all-time great shot of uh the ring ray kind of uh crouching over the the log while they're all underneath and then the worms the world <laughs> oh that that is a fantastic scene it is i hate that so i i actually i was thinking about that while i was watching it and i kind of squirmed a little while i watched it <laughs> and i think that's like the embedded memory of me seeing that the first time and being utterly terrified made me not want to watch it this time i'm just like no it's he's standing there and they're gonna die <laughs> I'm just surprised how he does not see them underneath the log. Like, he's literally hovering over the top of them. Aren't they, like, kind of technically blind or something? They are. So, like... Yeah, that they I did can, not know. <laughs> they can only see, like, shapes. And shapes of evil things. Yes. <laughs> they become weird skeleton men when the ring is on. I don't know. It does, it does kind of drag a little bit. The extended edition, though, it makes it drag so much more. Like, I think it's like maybe 40, 50 minutes before we even get to that point. Yeah. Do you think, like, and that was actually, if you remember, the, the wonderful The Hobbit, uh, what's the first one? An Unexpected Journey? Yeah. Yeah. The biggest criticism of that is there's an hour before the film gets started, basically, at the start. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. I think it's the the fault of the fans for loving the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings so much that Peter Jackson thought hmm, longer is actually better. So let's just like stretch this out as much as possible. We're just going to turn this book that's shorter than any of the other books into a trilogy all its own and have them sit around a table and banter for an hour, which actually I don't hate it. It's kind of fun. I don't hate it. The tone is just really weird compared to Lord of the Rings. Like That's the thing. Well, The Hobbit is a children's book. Yeah. As opposed to Lord of the Rings, which expands upon that world uh, in a much darker way, but I do, I do. If you, I think, if you look at the Hobbit trilogy as like the the Lord of the Rings, like little brother, kind of like you know, less mature, less like polished, but kind of still plucky and rootable for. I think those films work. Mm, to a degree <laughs> I think they're kind of stuck in uh, this kind of chasm between Guillermo del Toro who's originally going to direct the first two films when they were originally just two films and Peter Jackson coming in and kind of layering over his own stuff and Peter Jackson has talked about that before where he, just, he's, he kind of regrets that he was kind of lumped in there without like the necessary prep time to actually like plan these films and build them because we we're talking about Peter Jackson's filmography before Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring release, Peter Jackson last released the film in 1996. So that, in essence, means he was spending five years building up to releasing these films. Yeah, and you can even see in the behind the scenes that they released from The Hobbit, like, he's just so exhausted. And uh, he essentially came in because he was the only one the studio could turn to uh, because, like, hundreds of extras and... Uh, costume makers and stuff would have lost their jobs if the films had not gone ahead. Mm. And he was originally set to direct them, wasn't he? He was, and then he moved to like a producer and kind of writer role, and then Del Toro came in and did kind of his stuff, and then he left. So he started it, probably had it thrown out the window and started again, and then <laughs> had to come back and fix it. <laughs> and he did it all in a really short space of time, too. Yeah, and those, as like, I don't think the, the Hobbit trilogy is quite the feat of filmmaking as the lord of the rings trilogy is but they're no less giant large-scale productions i enjoyed the second one uh the desolation of smog though i thought that was pretty good i liked all three i like that trilogy it's not like as i said it's not great but no it's 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 fun for what it is if you take it for what it is like put it this way amazon doing a lord of the rings series now like i'm, I'm totally seeing more lord of the rings even after the hobbit what do you think they're gonna do with it um, I've heard it's going to be like a prequel series. It's going to be set between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, which as far as I know, nothing happens in that period. So yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I suspect we're going to get like sexy young Aragorn or Legolas or something. Mm. Well, we had which... sexy young Legolas here. <laughs> you did. Maybe sexy young Legolas. And technically they put Legolas in the Hobbit films, which means he had to be sexier, younger Legolas in those films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, cr- they cram so much stuff in that they just could have done without like this isn't the podcast about the hobbit but we're gonna make it <laughs> no i did, did not expect to talk about uh orlando bloom being sexy listen he's although a, he is he's a, he's a very beautiful man he's an objectively good looking man i don't think he's really been anything since like parts of the caribbean though yeah i think he kind of just 
picks and chooses and then doesn't do anything. <laughs> you kind of fell off the face of the earth after, like, I think the second or third film. Because, yeah, he did that, whatchamacallit, the, uh, what's the name of that film? Three Musketeers, he was in that. Yeah. And, I don't know, he was in the latest Pirates of the Caribbean. He was? <laughs> and I can't name you another film he was in other than that. Yeah, he's not a particularly good actor. He's fine, well... The the thing like about the Lord of the Rings, it it basically like requires like a kind of stilted Shakespearean esque delivery that you can kind of sort of wing if you're not very good at acting. Yeah, the Keanu Reeves kind of uh, school of acting. Yeah, and I think I think he gets away with it. I don't. I, I've never I never thought of him as like being bad in these films. No, he's not. He's he's actually really like kick ass as Legolas. I think they kind of take it a bit far in Return of the King with him kind of doing the uh, the surf down the uh, the elephant. <laughs> yeah, surfing down noses. Like the shield in Helm's Deep is pretty cool, but like the elephant is maybe like a step too far. It's, your, it's like we've got to top it. We've just got to yeah. top it. <laughs> What's better than a shield? An elephant. <laughs> who else do we have in this cast? There's obviously Ian McKellen, who is just objectively brilliant. I think McKellen probably steals the show in this film. Yeah, out of the out of the cast. Like like he anchors this film in a way that no one else does. Even like the Viggo Mortensen, he's. He kind of he doesn't have much to do in this, does he? No, he doesn't really have much to do on, until two towers, the latter, the latter half of two towers, in any way. It's like basically until like the very very last scene he has with Frodo, which I think is a really good scene. He he kind of just he just has to be there, being like I'm cool, dude. That's that's basically the first like two thirds of this film for him. He pulls it off pretty well, though. He's a cool dude. <laughs> He's a guy that just randomly goes being nominated for Oscars every second year for films you've never heard of, but are apparently really good. I think Russell Crowe actually would have pulled it off had he had he gotten a role. You see, I can't picture I can't picture young Russell Crowe anymore. No. <laughs> so like when I, when you say Russell Crowe for some reason when I think Russell Crowe and Aragorn I picture Russell Crowe from Les Mis, and then I'm just Les like, Mis. no. I keep, but... I keep picturing Russell Crowe from Mad the Nice Guys. I've never seen The Nice Guys. Oh, you need to see The Nice Guys. The Nice Guys is brilliant. That's uh, a recommendation for everybody. Yeah. See The Nice Guys. After you watch Lord of the Rings and you want to think, what if Aragorn was played by Russell Crowe? You watch The Nice Guys and that that's basically, I assume that's basically it. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, who, who was Nicolas Cage actually supposed to play? Do you know? Uh, Aragorn. Serious? Yeah. That would have been wild. <laughs> yeah, it would have. <laughs> I would have liked to see Nicolas Cage's Legolas, actually. Uh, no. <laughs> I would have, I'd like Nicolas Cage in his silly, over-the-top Nicolas Cage way, but I wouldn't have wanted to see anybody. Actually, no, maybe Gimli. He would have been a good Gimli. Yeah, he would have been. A re- he would have been brought so much gravitas to Gimli. He would have delivered that "and my axe" line brilliantly. <laughs> <laughs> And my axe. <laughs> this really, that's uh, I, I, I don't know the books well enough to know how many like of the best lines of this book or of this film are pulled straight from the book. But whoever like wrote the screenplay, which was Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Philippa Boyens, yeah, they did a real good job. Like, there's so many like iconic lines in this film because you, you obviously have the one does not simply walk into Mordor. You have and my axe. You have like fly your fools, fool of a took, which is. I think I'm just going to start calling people fool of a took just as like a general insult because it just has such a nice ring to it. <laughs> no, no, the screenplay is, is really, really well written. Mm. And especially, like I know a lot of fans complained they cut so much from the books and stuff, but you, you couldn't have included everything and had it work as well as it does. Well, the books are, I think, 1,100 pages combined? Combined? There might be even more. I think each book is like at least... 400 500 something pages yeah so you like oh you made a freaking nine hour film trilogy what what did they want did they want these films to run longer than three hours each and if they did they got extended editions and you clearly didn't want what you actually wanted no and obviously you would have gotten what the hub eventually became Mm. i love i love the way this film is like it's rooted in the humanity so much I think the two towers gets the, the humanity aspect of it even kind of better than this one. Mm. Um, when they obviously introduce Rohan and kind of more human people to relate to. Yeah, not just weird looking orcs. Yeah. <laughs> and my, actually, no, my favorite scene in this film is when they're trying to, before they're going to Moria and they're trying to find somewhere else to go, and they're just like, 
walking through that snowy mountain and all you hear is Saruman standing on the top of Isengard shouting enchantments <laughs> and he's just like he does not need to be standing on top of the tower swinging his, his freaking staff does he but he is and that's no, he, awesome he could have literally done that from inside like Isengard sitting in his chair but like it's Christopher Lee has to be like over the top yeah do you think they were like uh, like searching for people to play Saruman and just like well, we need someone who's like always the best villain in the history of villains. <laughs> it's like, oh, Christopher Lee, yeah. Although Christopher Lee was originally up for the part of Gandalf, that's the part he uh, actually wanted. But he's too evil for Gandalf. He can't do oh, it. He, can't he would do... have been far too evil for Gandalf. I've, I can't imagine if you like watch these films now and you see Christopher Lee, you, like the, the whole like Saruman heel turn. Which, in fairness, that they don't like hold that over you for too long before they reveal, yeah, he's actually a bad guy. But the second you see him on the screen, you're like, oh no. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, he's an evil wizard. <laughs> and you do have that cool wizard fight. It borders on the line between cool and ridiculous. Uh, and they get it just right. It, it does rather silly as, as Ian McKellen is flying through the air, being hurled around. <laughs> the thing is, how does he end up on top of the roof? Because he goes straight up, but like we clearly see there is not an opening in the roof. No, there is not. Are you questioning the... the... <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm questioning the, uh, the mechanics and the physics of how this works. The, to- the Tower of Isengard, well, it's a wizard house, so maybe he just opened a hole in the roof and then shoved him through it and then um, fixed it. But that, that's a cool way to explain it. A wizard did it. <laughs> just like he called the birds by whispering into the ear of a butterfly and sending it away. I don't he think was- it was a, It was like a moth, I think. Was it? Oh, no, or, 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 or some kind of weird... Welcome to the Anthropology of Insects, where we (laughs) designate the various different kinds of winged insects. I I guarantee Tolkien has written something on that. Yeah, he's probably, it's just like, yes, it's a a purple small wing. (laughs) He's described this moth. That's what I'm saying. He's he's actually written so much stuff on Middle Earth, I'm surprised we haven't got more kind of TV shows and films already, like... Well, the uh, who was what's his name was his son again. Oh, Philip Tolkien. Christopher Tolkien. Uh, Christopher Tolkien. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Because after the Hobbit films, he was like never again. No one's ever watched this <laughs> again. And then he, he passed. He passed on like the the rights, like the the because he, he, he's a rather elderly man. I think he's in his nineties at this stage. He passed on like the the trust running Lord of the Rings. And the second he did, he's like, "Hello, Amazon. Would you like to make some television shows?" Right, Christopher Tolkien is in his nineties. Yeah. I thought he was, like, relatively young. I'm pretty sure he's in his 90s. I have to Google that now in case I'm dreadfully wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out he's, like, a 50-year-old man. It's just... It's not Robin or Plummer or Columbus or Nolan. He's clearly not very famous if he doesn't come up in the first. No. (laughs) Christopher Tolkien is 93 years old. Holy hell. He's a... I suppose, yeah, his dad was... His dad not when did uh, Tolkien die in the seventies, didn't he? In the seventies, yeah. And I think he was in his seventies or eighties himself at the time. So the the math does add up. I don't think he's he, actually uh, J.R. Tolkien got to live to see the cartoon adaption of Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you've seen that. Do you think that that's the one that killed him? It, it would probably finish them off like on his deathbed. <laughs> it, it is not good. Like in fairness, if he managed to survive that, but got to the nineties Lord of the Rings video games. <laughs> Oh, that would have finished them all, Toby. <laughs> that definitely, like, no wonder Christopher Tolkien is just like, I'm just going to stop letting people make these things. Or the Shadow of War games, I would have loved to see him, like, see Shadow of Mordor, where uh, there's actually orcs, if you hang around long enough, will, like, piss in bushes and stuff. <laughs> it's what Tolkien would have wanted. That is the world he built. He, he, yeah. ca- he, can't, he can't wipe his hands of it. This is, this is his fault. He created this. I do, like, like, borrow, like, they do, they establish stakes, like, two characters die. Well, we'll say one and a half because Gandalf comes back. But I feel like like the arc of Baromir is is really like subtly executed. Like when there's the scene in uh, with Galadriel, and she's just looking him in the eyes, and you can see that he recognizes like he's been corrupted by the ring, but can't do anything about it. Oh, he's brilliant in those scenes. Like you can see the conflict. You can see that like he doesn't want to do what he's probably going to do, but he's going to do it because man, men are weak and they're corrupted by the strength of the ring. The thing is that I think the theatrical cut to terrorists uh, does a disservice. They're barely quite all uh, yep. Sean Bean's scenes and stuff, which I think 
in the extended edition is brilliant. It gives so much more backstory to the character. And I think it hurts Faramir as well, because I think that the, the, some of the depth comes out of his character as well, because it takes out all of those scenes. But uh, I, I also, actually, because they, there's two scenes in this film where, like, Gandalf and Galadriel, like, contemplate if they had the ring. And they're both like, I would try and use it for good, and I would rule, and I would be a fair and just ruler. But it's probably not a good idea. No, Kate Blanchett goes, like, literally batshit insane, and it's it's terrifying scene. Yeah, she's, she's fully, like, embraces the idea of her being the Queen of Death, ruling fairly somewhat, I guess. But I will say, though, that is... I don't know what I'd like them to do to fix this problem, but they never really show the power of the ring. They don't. They just kind of show its corrupting influence on the people around them. Yeah. Because like, I think it... In the prologue, they actually show uh, sort of the power of the ring when it's on Sauron and he's just like whacking people with his big mace. But the problem with that is he immediately has it cut off his hand and dies. Yeah, it's just like such such a shitty death for such a big character. Like, yeah, it just has his hand cut off and it's just like, well, that's the end of evil in the world. Which is actually interesting when you consider these, this trilogy from like a structural standpoint. They show the villain can be killed. Well, not like full on dead, forever killed, but stopped. They show the villain can be stopped in the prologue and then build a very effective three hour, three film series of drama based on that. As I said, the, the trilogy is like a minor miracle of villain making. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> oh. The action that is in this film, particularly like the final scene, like this, I, the, the prevailing thought coming out of this this film in particular, but the, obviously we'll talk about it down the line of the series in general, is just the scope and the scale and like the confidence and like the tone and the world building. But just this as a feat of filmmaking, more than even if it was terrible, which it's not, thank God. But as an ambitious piece of filmmaking, it's just mind-boggling. It, I, it feels trite to say they don't make films like this anymore, but they don't make films like this anymore. They really don't. I mean, the latest one you could probably compare that kind of scale to would maybe be Mad Max Fury Road, but even then, it's like a huge chasm. Mm. And maybe like something like Dunkirk comes to mind? And even then... <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> literally there's never been anything made like it before um maybe you could talk about like the ben horror films in like the 50s and the 60s and stuff but mm. like this this was on just like a totally different scale than anything we had gotten before like and there's uh, in the final battle scene there's a tracking shot where you hear barmir's horn go off and aragorn here is hears it and there's just a tracking shot that goes across that forest as you see the urukai like flowing through and then uh, Aragorn and folk are fighting and you get to, to Boromir fighting off the Urukai and it's like it's a 30 second shot but that's just you look at it and you say this film has a confidence to it that just no other film has this film settles on moments some people give out about these this this film and the trilogy like oh look at all these shots of people walking across hills but to me that says how confident this filmmaking is that we want to establish the scope and the scale and like how big this world is because it is important to realize that this is a long journey, not just a, you know, if you watch it, if you don't have those shots in there, it would feel like this whole thing takes place over two weeks where it takes place over a year, I think, doesn't it? I think like a year and a half, maybe. Yeah. So I think if you left all that stuff out, you would lose that effect of, of feeling like this this is a grand and long journey and it's exhausting. But it also, it's just so confident. It's beautiful shots. And it's the New Zealand countryside, so you can't complain there. But I feel like a, a lesser filmmaker and maybe a filmmaker that was more commercially pushed, like if there was a Marvel studio hanging over them, it's like, do we really need those 30 seconds of them walking? I think that would get like pulled out in focus testing. But they're there, and they're essential to a film. Never would I think, I don't think any other three-hour film would I look at and say, I wouldn't take any of it out. No, without a doubt, I think it's, it's, it's a perfect film from start to finish. Um, like, And I don't think many films are perfect, but this is definitely one of them. Mm. And even that tracking shot is one of my favorite tracking shots ever. I think you said it's like 30 seconds long. I think it actually might be even shorter, but it's just the way you have the whole scene blocked and everything is just brilliant. It's just that overhead shot following like th- through the woods and there's, I assume, like a good 50 to 100 extras just hurling their way through those woods. 
Yeah, like, and you can even see as the cameras move along, like, uh, Viggo Mortensen's in the background fighting, and Legolas and Gimli, and it's moving across, and there's Yurikoi running down hillsides, and it's just, it's brilliant. I don't know how many takes I must have taken them to actually get that right. And how much, like, planning, and as you said, the blocking of the scene, and just the direction of that to say, all right, all of you, this is where you're running, <laughs> and try not to run in the wrong direction, and if you do, stay out of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. It must have been so difficult to to actually coordinate. I mean, as I said, there was a, I think seven or eight different camera crews rolling at the one time, mm. and then obviously with hundreds of extras. Because I know when the the like the the big battle scenes in the later films, they use like mirrors and stuff to kind of do some visual effects trickery or practice well, technically practical effects trickery to make it look like there were more people than they were there. But th- I think. If you look at this shot in particular, it's like, God, this film is good. <laughs> I think even with the later battle scenes and stuff, they actually uh, debuted this new technology at the time uh, for large-scale battles where you could actually animate each individual, say, orc or goblin or whatever in like big groups. Uh, so every character was kind of different and they moved differently. So it wasn't just like copy and paste like this group of people. Mm. We have to talk about the score. The score is amazing, and uh, I would go to bat that it's actually the last great major franchise score we've uh, gotten ever since. Let me think about that. Can we talk about How to Train Your Dragon? <laughs> how to Train Your Dragon, that, that is actually a really good score. <laughs> yeah, You could probably dispute major franchise part of that, but those films make hundreds of millions of dollars. The guy who actually scored them, I think he's gotten a Star Wars gig um, for, I think, the Obi-Wan Kenobi film or Ryan Johnson's trilogy. Well, good for him. Very good film. I think uh, you could maybe say Hans Zimmer and the Dark Knight trilogy, but I don't think that's as kind of uh, expansive and as kind of colourful as The Lord of the Rings. I think if you took Hans Zimmer's score out of that film and put someone else's in, I think that film would probably still work. I think if you take Howard Shore's score out of this film and put someone else's in, this film, (laughs) I don't want to say it wouldn't work, but I don't think it would be nearly as effective. I think the actual score is just as important as uh, the script writing and the directing to uh, Lord of the Rings. Mm. All the character, like the, the and even like the way every single bit of music sets the tone. You have the the hopeful, pleasant, plucky, happy-go-lucky Shire theme. You have like the super badass, kick-ass Fellowship theme, and you have like the Enya song at the end, which is kind of solemn and melancholic. And you know, we just witnessed the the breaking of the Fellowship. And I told you this before we started recording, like when that those credits hit i just sat there and i just listened to the score because like the credits have like all the different themes running through them and i just sat there and listened to it for whatever however long the credits are the actual the actual main fellowship team uh is actually really complex i was looking at a video of it on uh, youtube i can't remember which youtuber it was but um throughout the film the way it ebbs and flows and as the fellowship begins to break you can actually hear less and less instruments throughout the score oh that's uh... That's such a good little touch. <laughs> so like when you go back and view it again, like it's really powerful at the start and it builds up and it builds up with all these different instruments. And then as they break up, it kind of gets lower and lower and there's less instruments each time. See, and it's, it, it's just brilliant. Yeah, that's just the kind of stuff that you probably don't even like consciously notice it until someone like sits there, analyzes it and realizes it. But that's the kind of thing that probably like subconsciously seeps in. Oh, totally. Like, you never pick it up. Uh, like, I, I never pick it up in any way until you actually go back and you rewatch. And, like, this film ends on a pretty pretty crappy note. Oh, the, the ending with Frodo standing on the shore with the ring and Gandalf's kind of voice coming back in is uh, it's so heartbreaking. Yeah, and, and again, that, that the bit of music that plays over that, which I, I do think he uses a couple more times throughout the series, is just... It's just... That that moment should be a moment of like all hope is lost, you know? Totally. That moment should be Barmir is dead, the fellowship is broken up, Frodo is alone, but it's not. That there's there's a tinge of hope that that's injected into that from the score, which is essential to like obviously this is the first film of a trilogy. I don't think an all hope is mo- a lost moment would have kind of worked at the end of the first film. No, I wouldn't. And even with Aragorn and Legolas getting back together, you can hear the score kinda of pick up again. Yeah, and like it's very clear that you know the, these these heroes are separated. These heroes are broken apart, but there is hope yet. They may make it, or they may all die in the next film. Who knows? 
yeah, it just has a pans up at the end to like Mount Doom and stuff, and it's kind of like yeah, the worst is like yet to come. I think we should like keep track of how many times uh, Frodo nearly dies in this series. I think he he only has two proper near deaths in this film. Yeah, the Mines of Moria when he's uh, stabbed by the troll. Mm. Oh, we have and... a cave troll. That's that's another yeah, in the long list of iconic lines. <laughs> God damn it, they should have left Barmy in these films. He is half of those lines. And as, as soon as, even as a kid, when you see Sean Bean, it's kind of like, yeah, he's not making it out this life. Yeah, poor guy. But he has an awesome death. His death is so good, and it's such a great redemptive arc that he do in the space of, like, I think 15, 20 minutes. Like. Yep, and it's like, he has to die. That is, like, storytelling logic says, if you redeem him, he has to die in the process. I think if like if he came, it's like oh, I sort of realized the error of my ways and walks on into the two towers. I think it undercuts that kind of arc of him being corrupted. But he gave into the ring, and if you redeem him in a way that feels like cheap or feels like you're letting him away with the consequences of his actions, I think it undercuts the character and it undercuts the film. But no, they kill him. He just dies defending the the well, actually not quite defending the hobbits. They still get kidnapped, so he kind of fails at that too. But still. <laughs> But even throughout the the rest of the series, you can actually see the way when Merry and Pippin fight, they fight the way they were taught to by Boromir early on in the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, that kind of energetic recklessness, I would I'd say. Yeah, <laughs> so the impact continues throughout the film, and as I said in the extended edition of uh, Two Towers, uh, they actually do uh, even more justice to the character with his background. Mm. Do we have any more prevailing thoughts about the Lord of the Rings of the Fellowship of the Ring aside from the fact, in my head, I've watched, I've seen these films probably five or six times start to finish as a trilogy maybe more and in my head usually the two towers is my favorite but watching this this time i'm just like this film is such a tightly well-produced brilliantly epic uh, it's it's as well paced as you could possibly hope a three-hour film to be and uh, i don't know it's tough to beat uh the fellowship is my favorite it used to be the two towers uh, i think that's probably the weakest of the three but even saying that's like better than most films like ever made mm. But um, it's just the pacing uh, of uh, and the story of Fellowship that I think uh, wins it over, really. And it builds the world, and it introduces, I don't know, 50 characters, and none of them feel shortchanged, and all of them feel like they have places to go. And it has the best score of all, well, maybe not all time. I'd put some John Williams Star Wars scores up against it, because I think... I think if you take John Williams' music out of Star Wars, Star Wars not only goes from uh, like being good, it goes to maybe being actually rather bad. But... <laughs> No, especially the uh, original trilogy in A New Hope, like without John Williams' scores, um, it's probably not really great. Yeah, I think I think particularly A New Hope without that Star Wars, without like John Williams' music, I think it's actually kind of like an actively bad film. Serious? <laughs> well, we, we can talk about this another time. I think <laughs> we'll do a a what's the word for a nine films series? <laughs> nine films cover nine films. Oh, uh, a headache. Yeah, fair, <laughs> fair. <laughs> Especially diving through the freaking chronology and canon, and I don't know. Do you think and the pre- and the prequels and the prequels uh, and then the spin-offs and no. Do you think watching because obviously the Hobbit the, tr- the Hobbit trilogy takes place before these films? Do you think watching that trilogy adds anything to these films? Watching the Hobbit trilogy. Yep. Um. No. <laughs> but <laughs> like, not do- even to like. There's uh, the the scene at the start where Bilbo's like, "Oh, I fought a cave troll," and if you you know if you watch the Hobbit trilogy, you'll have seen him fight the cave troll. Yeah, there's kind of little nice nods and stuff to like Lord of the Rings and what's to come, but I'm not big on the Hobbit trilogy. But even like you have the moment in the Hobbit trilogy where he he wants to kill Gollum and he spares him, and then back in the Fellowship, that's a a big like moral message of the film. Oh no, Riddles in the Dark is is brilliant and like mostly down to Andy Serkis, who again like is so underappreciated and uh, unrewarded for the work that he actually does. What's his name is a good Bilbo as well. Why have I forgotten his name? Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman, yeah. Yes. Ian Holm is also very good in this film. Ian Holm actually played Bilbo uh, in like a radio adaption of it back in the eighties, I think. I wonder did they hear that and like I can't possibly and, and like Peter Jackson is like I can't possibly think of anyone else as Bilbo. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any more thoughts about the the Fellowship of the Ring? Um, besides the fact that it's like awesome and like one of the best films of all time. Mm. No, I could probably go on talking about it for ages and just kind of the, the little things in it. But um, I just I just think it's a perfect film. And it's a hell of a start to a trilogy as well that only just gets better as it goes on. Especially a trilogy that 
no one fancied. And actually, watching this film, this film was made in two thousand one, and like you, you watch some similar films and you see the age. You know, some of the visual effects don't hold up. Some of like the green screen work doesn't quite hold up. And there is a small bit of that here, but for the most part, these films look like they could have been made last year. Well, like they were filmed towards the end of the 90s and yet they don't feel a, a part of the 90s and the way kind of big budget fantasy films were at the time. Yeah. I think and even, even box office wise, like fantasy films have never been box office like uh, kind of uh, successes. Because this film may, it was made for 93 million. That was back in the 90s. So adjusted for inflation, that's probably actually, I assume these numbers aren't inflation adjusted anyway but like 93 million and it made 871 million so it, it multiplied its production budget by 10 this film was a gigantic hit yeah I think Peter Jackson in the behind the scenes he actually remarks that they're the most expensive indie films ever made <laughs> that's actually like a really interesting way to think about it like I was, I was talking about that a second ago where as I said if these were Marvel films I think a lot of the more effective kind of parts of these films would kind of get committed out and it does feel like an indie film it does feel like this is his vision for this film all three hours of it well totally look if you go back and watch the films he'd done before even though there's no real indication of kind of what you would do with lord of the rings mm. they still do feel a part of that kind of gritty grimy independent uh style that you had to his earlier films and that is probably why they, they have aged better, because obviously there's a bunch of practical effects in this film, which always helps. Like, special effects will always age, and when you go back and look at them, you'll always be like, ah. I, I, think, I think they've actually aged really well. Mm. Like, there's maybe one or two small noticeable things, but um, other than that, I think, I think they've aged fantastically well. Like, the only, the only thing I ever noticed is a little bit of, like, the green screen pop. Yeah. That's like the only thing I think you notice in the entire trilogy that you'd be like, hmm. Like, compare it even with, say, like, The Matrix, which was released roughly around the same time. Yep. Uh, like, the CGI in that has not aged really well. Not at all. <laughs> this film was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Pretty much all of the Oscars. Yes, all of the Oscars. It won Best Makeup, which is fair when you look at, like, Orcs and Urukai. Well, that's the thing. I mean, films like this tend to only be nominated in the, the technical categories yep but um that's obviously why when return of the king won best picture it was kind of like that was like really weird do you think if this film trilogy is released say in 2016 2017 and 2018 do you think it gets the same like oscar buzz that they got back then um i think you'd have to go back and compare it to uh mad max fury road Mm. which was kind of similar and it got nominated i think in nearly every category and lost out to the revenant and I can't remember which of the film I lost that to, but it won most awards it was nominated for, except for like Best Picture, Director and stuff. Um, so I, th- I think it'd be the same thing. Lord of the Rings now would only be nominated for technical categories. Yeah. Poor Peter Jackson would be sitting there and not... Actually, well, he didn't win an award for this. They won, as I said, Best Makeup, uh, Best Original Score, which I throw... I think if I were in... Two th- if there was Twitter in 2001... I would I would throw a mild Twitter fit if it didn't win best original <laughs> score. I know I, I threw a Twitter fit when Fury Road didn't win like best everything. So like I I thought they would have uh, lost it over Lord of the Rings not winning. Poor Enya was robbed of best original song, which will will claim as like racism against the Irish. <laughs> it, it got best visual effects and best cinematography as well, which you can't for a second give out about. Oh no, the cinematography, Andrew Lesnia, who I think he died in 2015, I think. But uh, the work he did on the intro trilogy is brilliant. Mm. Especially the colour patterns and the palette and stuff. Uh, if you actually go over and watch each of them, there's like each of them is individually a different colour to the next. Mm. What would you say this This is kind of like orange? It's kind of like if you go back and watch, say, like 80s and 90s fantasy films, you're talking like all greens and browns and stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's it's much more colourful compared to say like the two towers which is kind of like all blues and greys which kind of fits totally with the way the series is going as well yeah totally but that that, that was an intentional uh, decision by Andrew Lesney to uh, colour grade each film differently but still make it feel part of uh, part of the one these films are good James <laughs> oh top to bottom like I hadn't watched the behind the scenes since I was a kid and going back and watching them again uh, you get so much appreciation for them like even the guys who made the chainmail and stuff for the likes of the orcs, uh, they actually like rubbed their fingerprints off 
because he made so much and worked so many hours making chainmail suits. What? He actually, <laughs> he actually like, basically sandpapered their fingerprints off. That is commitment. Totally. It paid off. The thing they made was good. Imagine if this turned out to be terrible and it's like, I sandpainted my fingerprints off for, <laughs> for like the Jupiter Ascending trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Though no one is quite as bad as Eddie Redmayne was in Jupiter Ascending. I don't know. I couldn't like him in Jupiter Ascending. It's so over the top. It's ridiculous. No, he I should know. have his Oscar <laughs> revoked for it. <laughs> He's not a great actor, though, to be honest. No, and he won an Oscar for that film that I don't remember, that I didn't see. But I think... Oh, um, with Stephen Hawking. The Hawking uh, film, yeah. I, I can't remember what it's called, but I think he's similar to Benedict Cumberbatch. He only has kind of the one style of acting. Mm. So Benedict Cumberbatch makes good things with that style of acting every so often. <laughs> Well, he occasionally makes good things. I didn't like the recent series of Sherlock or... What was it? Star Trek Into Darkness, actually. Yeah, he leaves those Star Trek films a lot. Actually, I, no, I didn't like that either. <laughs> I like Beyond. Beyond is a good film. Beyond is actually really good. Yeah. JJ, JJ's leading the stars. All of the stars. He's fixing the world of stars. <laughs> Until Quentin Tarantino gets his uh, shot with Star Trek next. That's going to be strange. I don't, I don't know how that's going to work. <laughs> I, I still think it's a joke. Uh, and they're just kind of like waiting to say like April Fool's or whatever but um, apparently he's going to write it and he's going to direct it and it's going to be like rated 18 what does a rated or Star Trek film look like oh we'll get to see Spock fuck well good for him I hope he gets Samuel Jackson in as well just like for kicks just to, to he's too old for this shit this kind of film yeah like I've had it with these like motherfucking Klingons and this motherfucking Enterprise <laughs> If there's not a line in that film, god damn it, Quentin. But it's going to be his last film as well. Uh, that'll be his tenth and final film. So he says, though. So he says, yeah. Before we go, do you want to plug anything? Um, Not really. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at CRSVanX. But that's kind of about it. I tweet really bad stuff, so. Hey, your Twitter's good. Uh, thank you. There's that Eurovision tweet. That did the good numbers. Yeah, that that was apparently really popular amongst Polish teenagers. So. Well, there's your yeah. demographic. You should move to Poland. <laughs> Start like a pop star career among Polish teenagers. Maybe. That is the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I'm not even going to promise there's going to be an episode next week because... I'm pretty sure there's a pretty reasonable track record of me being a liar. But nonetheless, if there is, it's me and Barry talking about Thor. You can listen to new episodes of Podcast a Week every single week <laughs> at soundcloud.com forward slash or by subscribing on iTunes by searching for the TWS network. Follow me on Twitter at Nerekidney, G-A-O-R-E-T-T-K-I-D-N-E-Y. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. <laughs>